This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property and so much happening in the news today that I've got an encyclopedia worth of news articles just from the last week. So we're going to talk a little bit about the market today and what's been happening. So many articles from around the country to do with the market that I'm just going to try and summarise that a little for you so it's a bit easier to digest. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the... Uh, things that are happening in the commercial sector as well with regards to property and, and what effect COVID has had on that. There's a little bit about uh, tenancy-related news as well and fundamentally uh, just so much news. We're going to have uh, a bit of fun today talking about that, provided you're actually interested in the real estate news, of course. So let's have, start with an article that appeared in the New Zealand Herald and it's entitled Why New Zealand and Auckland Prices Hit Record High. The Real Estate Institute data has come out from August and the national and Auckland house prices are at an all-time record due partly to the pandemic as sales rally post-lockdown and people upgrade their homes where they're spending more time. So last month's new national record medium of 675,000 is up from 580,000 a year ago. So let's just repeat that for a moment and let that sink in. A year ago, the national median was 580. Now the national median, 675. And uh, so it's moved up uh, somewhat. And even since July's, which was 659, it's up 15,000 since then. Auckland's median jumped 16% to 950, which was a new record high up from 819,000 the same time last year. And it's even gone up almost 32,000 in one month. So Bindi Norwell, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand Chief Executive, has said that many factors are working together to drive up prices, although she cited the pandemic for two reasons. The combination of low interest rates, the removal of loan-to-value restrictions, the lack of listings, people's aspiration to have more space, or a bigger backyard to catch up on to catch up post-lockdown, and a first-time home first home buyer's desire to get onto the market have all contributed to the uplift. In fact, every region in the country actually recorded an annual increase in median house prices last month. And that's why, uh, like I say, we'll go around the regions in a moment just to get an idea. Now, I don't know if you remember, but economists were this year predicting house price falls of 6 to 9%, either by the end of this year or by March of next year. The opposite has happened, and Norwell predicted this could continue, as I do as well, incidentally, but we'll get to that soon. Unless we see more listings come on the market before Christmas, we may start to see additional pressure on the house prices and affordability, she said. It'll be interesting to see what happens when we're heading into spring, as traditionally sales volumes start to lift as the weather warms up. So in the Herald they had a a graphic which shows how much the median house prices went up in August compared to the year earlier. So in our region, Manawatu, Wanganui up 15.1% to a median of 450,000. 
others worthy of mention, Hawke's Bay up 20.1% to just a little bit under 600,000. Even Wellington up almost 13% year on year. And these are incredible returns on investment. So Wellington's gone up to a median of 720. Uh, Auckland, like I said, 16%. Uh, Waikato, almost 17 Northland, almost 17 Taranaki, 15 Bay of Plenty, 11 And Gisborne, 95 So incredible in those North Island areas how much they're going up. The star of the show in the South Island, Southland up 20%, Otago around 17 West Coast 18 and even Canterbury and Marlborough up around 13%. So she goes on to say, as we've already seen, 2020 seems to be defying all predictions and going against all norms at this point in time. However, the full impact of COVID-19 may not have been realised yet, particularly in relation to the unemployment and economy. I think she's got a reasonable point there because there's been a lot of propping up artificially of people's financial situation. So we'll see what happens in the near future. Uh, just for those of us who are local, the Manawatu Wanganui, I mentioned a 15% increase, but let's break that down. There's three distinct regions there. There's Tararua, which has gone up to a record of 320,000, Manawatu to 535, and Wanganui to 375. So stats for some of the centres like Wanganui and Palmas North haven't come out just yet. But if that's anything to go by, it bodes really well if you own a property or properties in our region, and in fact many regions in the country. So this was reiterated in an article by Radio New Zealand that said the housing market since lockdown has been astonishing and the eight regions have record prices. So they did really quote, again, a lot of what I've just mentioned. But I just wanted to mention another quote that Bindi Norwell had in this article where she said, for the last few weeks we've been hearing reports from around the country of vendors achieving good prices for the sale of their homes, but we would never have guessed that eight regions and 17 districts and cities across the country would see record median prices just four months after the entire country was in lockdown. The housing market's recovery post-lockdown over the last few months has been astonishingly astonishing and certainly surpassed many predictions. So it's interesting because uh, I talked about The Economist and how they predicted it would um, drop initially. However, now uh, economists are saying that they predict the market would stay how it is now, at least in the short term because of low inventory levels. I think there was recently the lowest number of listings in the country for sale in 13 years. So some economists, ANZ Bank economists, for example, said a wobble, although less drastic than initially feared, was still likely. And again, they say that the test will come when the, with the wage subsidy ending, unusual, unusual, <laughs> I'm getting my tongue tied today. So the test will come with the wage subsidy ending, unusual seasonal strength dissipating, and the impact of the closed border becoming more evident, and many households rolling off a mortgage de- payment deferral. So they're taking a cautious approach there. Uh, ASB uh, senior economist Mike Jones said similar. He said that our previous forecast for a 6% fall on the house prices was recently upgraded to just a 3% fall by March 2021. So let's put that in context. If we're looking at the increases we were talking earlier in the last 12 months of you know that, that 10% up to 20% in areas around the country, a 3% fall is not 
that bad. So we don't need to worry at all. Even Tony Alexander, uh, who's the um, economist and well-known in real estate circles, had written an article saying, where's that housing downturn we talked about? And and again, he just talks about the various different things that have meant that this, this hasn't eventuated. The things we've talked about on the show before, I won't reiterate them now. And even Propeller Property founder Nikki Connors says uh, in an article and stuff that she can't see why people are so negative about the property market when COVID-19 hit and she's not surprised at how well it's doing now. I mean, certainly property sales took a dive during the Level 3 and Level 4 lockdown, but by June had recovered in terms of both volumes and prices and the market hasn't really looked back. She says, I was very, very positive during lockdown we were going to get through. And she goes on to say, it made me so angry that we saw the analysts or we saw the economists talking about this huge downturn and I just couldn't see it. I just could not see that happening because we're on the ground floor seeing what demand is and that huge gap. So what's interesting about that is that things can become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in real estate sometimes. When enough media outlets say the property's prices are going to drop, uh, people uh, can either panic sell or decide not to buy as they feel that the prices are going to go down. But that simply hasn't happened this time around. The market's so strong it could even stop that uh, self-fulfilling prophecy from happening. That just goes on to uh, talking about that. So um, even the low interest rates are something quite dramatic. I'd re- refixed uh, some of mine recently. Uh, and, yeah, just the the amount of extra money that comes into the household as a result of that makes the rental properties more uh, easily able to be serviced, which is good for uh, landlords because there have been a lot of extra costs lately and having that lower interest rates means that those costs don't necessarily need to be passed on to tenants. So landlords do run their properties as a business, as they they should, and um, the fact that your costs have come down um, may be passed on in a sense that rents may not necessarily go up. Don't quote me on that though because supply and demand is the strongest factor. Next, this article from New Zealand Advisor or NZ Advisor Online, Commercial Property Sales Plummet. So we've talked about the housing market. Let's talk about the commercial market for a moment. So so the housing markets remained stable despite the impacts of COVID-19, but commercial property sales were not that lucky, according to real estate firm CBRE New Zealand. CBRE's transaction monitor uh, for the first half of 2020 found that only 46 commercial properties worth over $5 million were sold, compared to 76 in the first half of 2019. And the 46 properties sold were worth only $961 million, half the value of the 76 commercial properties at $1.89 billion. CBRE says clearly recent sales volumes were influenced by the recent COVID-19 related lockdown that impacted both the supply of property coming onto the market as well as the purchaser's ability to engage. Brent McGregor, the executive chairman of CBRE New Zealand, described the first half of the year as the most uncertain environment for some time as there were fewer commercial properties in the market than in the last few years, despite having no shortage. Lowest interest rates keep the market resilient, but the reopening of the borders was still needed to really support the commercial market. He says, we haven't seen any real bargains out there yet, and whether that will happen or not, that's yet to be seen. But with the lower interest rate environment, pricing could hold up pretty well. If interest rates stay low where they are, I don't believe we're going to see any dramatic problem, but a lot depends on that. 
It's certainly going to be helpful for the property market when the borders open up because when tourism starts again, when international investors can come and start looking around New Zealand for property, it just improves the overall situation tremendously. There's also a risk that post-COVID there can be, this is just my view, uh, uh, less people wanting office space and so forth where they've got used to being able to work from home and make savings around that. And there are some large companies that are rationalising whether they need commercial leases in uh, so many buildings when they can reduce the square meterage and running costs significantly. So we're going to take a little break here now. We're just going to go to a bit of music. Uh, I've got here the... uh, I am a fan of Imagine Dragons, so uh, this is Imagine Dragons with Radioactive.
And we're back here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's fantastic having your company here on MPR. Te reo irirangi o nga tangata o manawatu. So one thing I like about Property Matters is that there's always a bit of slightly unusual real estate news. And I try to trawl the internet to find things that may be of interest. And here's one that I found. It's actually a New Zealand story. It's a from NIO, and uh, this title from stuff.co.nz says, Original 1920s railway cottage do up in NIO, not for the faint-hearted. And this is in the home section. And this is one of those articles where, uh, by Colleen Hawkes where you'd sort of need to see the photos in fairness. So it's not for the faint-hearted. So it's an old railway cottage. They are sought-after properties because their history and character are really quite nice. But do-ups are now hard to find, but every once in a while an original railway cottage will come on the market, and that's what's happened in Tarakaka Road in Nio. Now, this street has many beautifully restored 1920s railway cottages, you might know it, but the most recent cottage for sale is definitely not one of those. In fact, listing agent Everard Aspel of Ray White Wellington City describes number 44 as the worst house in the street. The semi-derelict house, which has been owned by the same people for more than 30 years, is clearly ripe for renovation, and it's a three-bedroom do-upper on an elevated 615-square-metre section. So Aspel says that regulations prevent the cottage from being removed, so it actually needs to be restored. When commenting about the property, he says, it appears as though a front window was replaced in the 1970s, which will actually need to be removed to return the original character. But that seems like the only exterior thing to have been replaced. The rest of the place is basically untouched. The room sizes are original and not much else left. It's certainly not a project for the faint-hearted. So uh, the property has a rating value of 670 and goes to an auction on September the 25th, 2020. So there's a little bit of free advertising there. I've got no vested interest in that, just so you know. But if you look up that original 1920s cottage on Homed, I imagine you can look that uh, Tarikaka property, uh, Tarikaka Road property up on the likes of realestate.co.nz or, or similar. So it's a... It's, like I say, the funniest thing sometimes about these articles are the photos, and it's a bit hard to uh, show that, of course, uh, via this median. Here's something that's not quite so funny. In fact, it's uh, not, not a good news story. This is from the New Zealand Herald.co.nz. Wellington City Council's social housing arm is at risk of insolvency. So the Wellington City Council's wanting central government help to foot the bill for rent subsidies and free up money for its cash-strapped social housing arm. So one of the councillors warned that if city housing's financial issues aren't addressed soon, it it risks becoming insolvent. So the councillors have recently been considering whether to put 20 social housing properties on the open market to pay for a development within its portfolio in Nairn Street. Because insurance and construction costs have weighed heavily on city housing, leaving it in a financially unstable position. So... Along with selling off assets, the council has also considered rent pricing changes, which would generate more money to stay afloat. So the situation's back into play. It's a little bit of a political football, uh, but I just wanted to mention a little bit about that. It doesn't say in here how many people that new development could house. Um, for example, are you selling 20 social housing properties to build 10? I don't know, or is, we have to see how that goes. Or do you change the style and fit more people in? So it's it's a really real tricky one because the, um, the, the they have that social mandate, which means another way is to put the rent up across the portfolio, which then mirrors aspects of the private system. So it's going to be interesting to see what they decide to do there. That really could be quite an argument. 
but suffice to say that like many centres, and as we mentioned earlier, Wellington uh, property prices have increased significantly in the last 12 months, uh, and therefore the even if you free up the money, it's not necessarily going to solve any problem. There's just a fundamental housing shortage. Uh, I would imagine the government may come forward to help uh, the city council in our uh, capital city, but we'll just have to see how that goes. Here's something else that was in the news recently. Hamilton Real Estate Agency slapped with $4 million fine for price fixing. It's a huge, huge fine. And this is just following on from a case that has gone to the High Court, or they've been ordered by the High Court, two Hamilton real estate agencies, to pay a total of $4 million for price fixing. So Lodge Real Estate has had to pay $2.1 million, and Monarch Real Estate has had to pay $1.9 million for engaging in price fixing, which breaches the Commerce Act, the Commerce Commission said on Thursday. So here's a bit of the backstory. The, the saga began in 2013 when TradeMe put up its online property listing prices. A number of Hamilton real estate agencies met to discuss their responses. The Commission first filed court proceedings in December 2015 against 13 national and regional real estate agencies and three individuals for agreeing to pass on the costs of Trade Me's pricing change. Now, this is something that also took place in our area in Manawatu, the court has found. But, but a number of agencies admitted liability and paid penalties to the Commission, some topped a million dollars. Penalties in this case totaled just under $23 million. So Lodge and Monarch were penalised for their roles in coordinating the Hamilton regional response to Trade Me's pricing decision, the Commission said. The Director of Lodge and the Director of Monarch did not have to pay a penalty, the High Court ruled, despite an earlier Court of Appeal finding that they did engage in unlawful contact, which was upheld at the Supreme Court. The Commission filed proceedings for alleged price fixing and anti-competitive behaviour in 2015 after the agencies decided they would no longer meet the costs of Trade Me property listings for their vendors. The seller of the property or their agent would pay. In other words, the companies decided that because uh, Trade Me had put the prices up so much, the companies could no longer pay that and pass those prices on to the consumer. So the case went to the Supreme Court where, the, where Lodge and Monarch and their directors lost their long battle against the price-fixing allegations. The Commission Chairwoman Anna Rawling said it's not unusual for industries to experience price increases from suppliers, and this case illustrates how important it is that companies avoid any discussions with their competitors on how they should respond to such a change. Cartels can harm consumers and business by raising prices, restricting supply and changing the competitive dynamic between businesses. So from April next year, cartel conduct will be a criminal offence carrying a maximum of seven years jail. So they strongly urge businesses to familiarise themselves with the law and ensure they have processes in place to guard against collusion with their competitors. And that's just good business advice in general. So that's where uh, that is at. Those are large, incredibly large fines, um, however, uh, warranted the Commerce Commission has decided. I mentioned earlier about uh, regional housing situation and uh, the prices going up. Uh, well, recently uh, Winston Peters was uh, talking to a crowd of people in, in Blenheim and encouraging people in Marlborough to vote in, vote in what he says a decent housing minister. So, <laughs> so he's, um, again, trying to drum up support, making things more uh, more affordable and to get somebody in there that's going to help with the housing crisis. Easy to say that sort of stuff 
in uh, in the time of elections. And that leads on to another article that is about uh, from stuff.co.nz, which talks about New Zealand first calling for rent controls, uh, or historically calling for rent controls. So uh, that's where it is just an opinion piece, but um, does talk about uh, historically a situation in Christchurch where thousands of homes were destroyed. Um, the shortage meant that rental prices climbed, of course, and supply and demand. And by April of 2012, New Zealand First was calling for rent controls and the Tenants Protection Association agreed. But then something happened. Christchurch rents flattened and even dipped, while rental costs in Wellington skyrocketed. Uh, the earthquakes were terrible. They brought one very big and important change. Councils on the fringes of city, Christchurch City started getting very serious about allowing new building, more housing come available, and rent drops. So it's easy to see rental markets as a bit of a war between landlords and tenants, with landlords conspiring with each other to keep rents high, and tenants pushing back through legislation restricting landlords. Instead, landlords compete against each other for tenants, and tenants compete against each other for houses. So when houses are in short supply, that process greatly benefits existing landlords, but when houses are abundant, the tenants do well. So this article talks about um, the, the supply and demand. So few places in New Zealand, it says, have abundant housing. After painful post-earthquake housing shortages, Christchurch became New Zealand's most affordable major urban housing market. In Auckland, buying the median house cost nine times the median household income. In Wellington and Hamilton, the median house goes for just under seven times the median household income. In Christchurch, just over five, which is similar to here in Manawatu, Wanganui. So really, it's pretty important to keep building new houses, townhouses or apartments, the article says. And when that's happening, when it's easy to build, uh, rents don't go up that much. And so the, the great thing is there is that uh, the only thing that can really control rents is to do with supply and demand. So imagine what would happen to car prices, she says, and to the quality of cars on offer if the government made car importers go through a resource consenting process like the processes to build a new house and banned taking heritage cars off the road regardless of their state of repair. So they talk about rent control and real rent control doesn't mean legislated restrictions on what landlords are allowed to charge. Real rent control and real tenant protection instead means allowing such a flood of new housing on the market that the heritage or existing houses that are barely fit for livestock would never attract a tenant without substantial remediation. It means getting rid of barriers to the building housing in places where people want to live. It means letting developers' expectations about what tenants might want to drive to decisions rather than letting city councils forbid anything they cannot imagine anyone wanting like housing that doesn't have a car park or small apartments or tiny houses or apartments without balconies and it means just recognizing that every new dwelling that gets built makes all landlords compete just a little bit harder against each other for tenants even expensive new apartments or homes people moving in to these new apartments or homes leave another house open for someone else that otherwise would have been competing with other tenants for existing houses so really it's about getting the properties built that's going to solve this so legislated rent rent control by contrast is nothing to increase the number of houses available cannot solve the housing shortages or overcrowding uh, it's very hard to get new housing built in cities stymied by rent control. So this has been something that's been in the media, uh, particularly here in this location, uh, Manawatu, recently. Little has changed since Swedish economist Asar Lindbeck called rent control the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city except for bombing. 
The Brookings Institute summarised the evidence recently, finding that rent controls wind up decreasing affordability. The new national policy statement on urban planning requires councils to allow more housing in places near public transport, which is something I really like. It's an excellent first step. Christchurch built its way to housing affordability after the earthquakes, and the rest of the country can as well. So councils still have a strong incentive to restrict new development pushed by local government financial models that make growth costly for councils. Again, um, the... Eric goes on to say there's important work to be done to end the housing shortage and to bring in real, effective rent control. So that's what's that's the show for today here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's been lovely having your company and we look forward to catching up with you in a week's time or if you're listening to this as a podcast, whenever you feel like listening to the next podcast. Have a great week. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.